Well, we mentioned this morning that there are only a few uh, recorded cleansings of lepers in the, in the New Testament. And as we looked at the one in Mark this morning, and, and tonight we're going to look at, at the, really I would say the other, the, the primary other one in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 17. So if you're not there, you can open your Bibles to Luke 17. And we're going to learn from the, the example of these ten lepers. There's a good example here and a bad example. Obviously, it, as you read the passage or re-familiarize yourself with the passage as we read it, you're going to figure out very quickly who's the good example and who's the bad example. It, but um, there, there, there are two things that we're going to focus on. One is what this, this idea of miracles, in this case, what this miracle reveals, how we're to think about supernatural works, and then two, what we can learn about genuine faith. As I said uh, when I opened the service up tonight, this morning the focus was on Christ and on how, how His compassion was what moved Him. He, he saw the leper's need and He was moved with compassion and then cleansed him and then sent him, obviously, on mission in, into, into ministry. The focus of this, obviously, is Jesus because the whole Bible's about him, but it really, the highlight is the response or the lack thereof of these lepers and their, and their faith. You're going to see Jesus do some, some very different things with these ten lepers uh, that he didn't do with the man uh, this morning. Now, I think a lot of times, just let me say this about miracles before we even get there. I think a lot of times it's easy for us to, to wrongly think about, about our spiritual lives and about how God works. I mean, don't you find that whenever you, you read the New Testament, it's, um, it's easy, uh, or, it's, or I should say it's hard, to think of people like the Apostle Paul or Peter as real Christians, when in, when in reality, they're just like me and you. Isn't it easy to kind of put them up on a pedestal? Well, I could never be a Paul. I could never be a, a Peter. And yet, as they say, they, they put their pants, or in their case, their tunic on, just like you and I do, a, a pair of pants. And I also think it's easy, as you read through the Gospels, um, to forget that all of these different events that are there are, are placed in the Bible, placed in the Gospels by the Holy Spirit, uh, obviously uh, inspiring the author to tell a story. And he weaves all these stories together. And it's easy for us to think that, that the normal Christian life is all about from miracle to miracle to miracle. Or that every time you're going to share the gospel, thousands are going to come to Christ. So I pray that that would, that that would happen. Um, and maybe that's some experiences uh, in, the, in the world. But there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the white space, as they say. Um, uh, when, when you think about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, you can get the idea of the, of the missionary journeys, that that's the way that missions is done, uh, meaning that, that it's just going to flow like the book of Acts. Churches are going to be planted all over the place, uh, and then it's going to come in rapid fire. And yet, talk to a faithful missionary who's been plotting in the same field for, for 30 years and gives praise to God for planting a couple churches. It's easy to think, when you're dealing with miracles, that, that that's the way the spiritual, the normal spiritual life works. That our spiritual lives, when God's really doing something, it's in the big occurrences or, or the, the, 
the weighty decisions. But whenever you actually live the Christian life and look at the Scriptures, you find that our Christian growth, walking by faith, is, is nothing more than the ordinary ticking of the clock, putting one foot in front of the other. Oh, God does uh, amazing things, and He works. But the norm is what you're doing here tonight. You're faithful, and you've come, even though the Green Bay Packers are playing. I know this well. I listened to them on the way here. But you've come to hear the Word of God. And whether the Lord uh, just moves in a mighty way and, and convicts you of some sin or brings you to faith in Christ or, or gives you uh, some nugget about God that you've never seen before, the Lord is at work and you're being sanctified. You've placed yourself under the Word. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the, the Word of Christ. God is not only working when He does the miraculous He's also working in what we may call the the mundane. The life of following Christ is a life of deliberate faith and diligent work. Now, I think it's easy to want God um, to, to, to just show up and do amazing things without deliberate faith and without diligent, diligent work. Uh, Tracy and I joke all the time, um, I, I have... I have I've got three sets of suits, okay? Now, when I say three sets, I've got like two in each category. But I've got my fat suits, I've got my medium suits, and then I've got the, the skinny ones, okay? Well, I'm in the mid-range right now after the holidays, so I just started back on my watching what I, what I eat, and I complain all the time. And I told Trace, I said, wouldn't it be nice to be a skinny pig, right? I mean, you just want to eat whatever you want to eat, and never, ever gain any weight. But that's not the way that it works, is it? There is diligence, and there are decisions that are, that are being made in the same Christian life. Yes, God may show up and unveil Himself in some supernatural way, but the normal Christian life is a life of deliberate faith that produces diligent work. And when we talk about miracles in the Bible, like we're talking about with these, with these lepers, we need to understand what Scripture teaches about them. And miracles are meant to proclaim a number of things to the individuals that, that, that were around. And the Bible uses a number of different words for, for miracles. Miracles are called signs. They're called wonders, powers, and works. All of those words are used whenever the Bible talks about miracles. In use of the word wonders, they're called wonders because people are astonished by their, by their working. I mean, it, it implies that, that they exceed the normal working of nature, and because of that, people are amazed, and we should be. Um, we're, we're, we're at wonder in what God is, is, is able to accomplish. So they're also called signs because they're an indication of something. They're an indication of God's presence or an indication that he's fulfilling his, his promises. And, and miracles are at times an indication that God is near or a confirmation of a promise that, that, he has, that he's made. You can see that all over the New Testament. There are also, miracles are also to proclaim his power in a very unveiled way. So the Bible uses that term because they, they indicate the inherent ability of God that is required to accomplish whatever it is that's supernatural. I mean, it's, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And that requires 
supernatural power. Miracles don't require, though, any more power than the miracle of ordinary life, ordinary nature. I mean, think about it. How much power does it take God to hold all of the world uh, you know, in the palm of his hand, in, in, to conform. Jesus said that, that, that he's holding it all together in the book of Colossians. Is God exerting any more power, keeping the earth turning and all of the planets in orbit and keeping things from flying apart, keeping, uh, you know, the, the effect of sin uh, from just ravaging everything through bacteria or virus or otherwise? It takes God's power. God is, it's his sustaining power that, that does that. The unceasing activity of God requires His supernatural power to do that. And, and He testifies of that in the Bible. But a miracle, in a miracle, God just unveils that power. He breaks out of the daily rep- repetition. And a miracle is abnormal because it unveils His power in a specific way. They also indicate the character of God's works. So they're called works. They they show the kind intention of his will and the work that he does. I think that's really what you can see in these in the in the leper this morning and and now. Uh, Christ is not obligated to do this for, for, for the lepers. As you're gonna see in this group tonight, not all of them are even thankful to Christ or worship Christ. And obviously Jesus knows that before he heals them, cleanses them. But it shows the kind intentions of his works. And the danger is not in the fact that God does the miraculous. The danger is in seeking that and not the one who performs them. Or thinking that God is really at work whenever he does things like that and miss how he's active all around us every day. And then you have that biblical warning It's a wicked and perverse generation that seeks after a manifestation or seeks after a sign because it deflects the proper glory that should go to God and places it in the the sign. We have to guard ourselves for making God's work about special events that surely come and keep our eyes fixed on the deliberate walk in the Word of God. Well, let's look at Luke 17. Just to give you a little bit of background, we're going to begin reading in verse 11. And Luke moves from a series of conversations that's been going on between Jesus and his disciple. And then you have this this recorded miracle here. And the focus of Luke shifts from the words of Christ to the work of Christ. It shifts from his teaching to specific actions. And Luke records this amazing miracle and gives us an example of the proper response of, of faith. Let's begin reading in verse 11. It says, While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village. Ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? 
But where are the nine? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well or has saved you. Now, I find in this passage at least three lessons that the miraculous, this miraculous event, actually teaches about genuine faith. There's three lessons here. And the first one we're going to look at is the direction of genuine faith is in the person and the promise of God. This one leper that returned, you're going to see that his faith, his genuine faith, is in the person of Christ and the promise of Christ. And it was the opposite for the, for the other nine. Let me show you that. Look at verse 11. Now Luke begins with giving us some information, reminding us uh, of Jesus' target while he was on the way to Jerusalem. That's not just uh, something he threw in there. It's to remind us that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem to go to the cross. And while Luke's been talking about his ministering and teaching and healing along the way, he doesn't want us to forget that was the Lord's primary goal. Jesus came not to do miracles, but to bear the wrath of God for sinners on the cross and to rise from the dead on the third day. That was the miracle of miracles. And he is, his face is still set in that direction. So Luke says, as he was going to Jerusalem, he takes a route between the territory of Samaria and Galilee. He was passing between them, the Bible says. Now, Samaria and Galilee were not towns. They were, they were provinces or regions. We might think of them like states. And as he was passing through the midst of them, it, it, it kind of means he was walking on the border between the two and he's headed to Jerusalem. And as he does, he comes to a certain village. Look at verse 12. He entered a village. We're not told what village it is. But it's obviously a border town. And there were Jews and Samaritans both in the general vicinity because we find out of these ten lepers... At least one of them was a, was a Samaritan. Galileans would have been Jews. And they're probably not living together in this town because that didn't happen between Jews and Gentiles or Jews and, and Samaritans. But as the Lord comes up to this town, ten men meet him. And as he gets closer, he can tell that, that they're lepers because of their dress and also their location. Look at verse 12. He entered a village and ten leprous men stood at a distance. Now, it's, it's placed here because they're at the entrance of the city. They're outside of the, of the city. The location was probably where the city trash dump was at because that's where, that's where leper camps were. And they were there because they're confined to a place and it's the only place where they can find food and other items. They couldn't go to the store and buy whatever they, whatever they needed. So they would pick through the refuge and and things that are there outside of the, of the city. And the Bible says they stood afar off. And the distance would have been about a hundred paces according to the, to the law. And as the Lord gets closer, they can see Him too. And, the, and they crowd together at the required distance and they lift up their voices and they cry out together. Look at what they say in verse 13. They raise their voices saying, Jesus, Master, they use... Uh, two terms for him. Have mercy on us. There's the request. 
And they don't just do it once, even though it's only recorded once. It, you can see that in the in the original language. It's it, it's 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 in it's not even in unison. All of them were saying and yelling and wailing and repeatedly saying, Messiah, Master, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, over and over and over. It was the intensity and the volume of a, of a grieving person at a, at a funeral, with the eagerness of like a, like a baby bird that begins to open its beak whenever the mama bird brings back a, a worm. And they're... You ever watch that on National Geographic or others? The little birds are there in the nest, and they sense that mom comes back. And, and, and the minute that that happens, they begin to chirp, and they open their mouth. And the idea is when they saw Jesus, that's what they did. They were silent up to, to that point, because these men were desiring something from Jesus. They were seated in their rags, tired from their sickness, trying to pass the time, no doubt deformed in some way. And off in the distance, they see a group of travelers, which is not abnormal, but as they get closer, they recognize who it is. And for the lepers, it was hope in human form. That's what Jesus is. He's hope in human form. It's Jesus, the one who many claim is the Messiah, and they leap up and quickly shuffle to the appropriate distance, and they begin to cry out. Now, I want you to notice that they're observing the law of Moses. They're keeping their distance. That was different from the leper this morning, right? He goes through the crowd, he disregards everything, and he falls at Jesus' feet. They stay at the appropriate distance. And notice what they cry, Jesus, Master. It's the term for, for Messiah. It's significant. They cry out his messianic name, and they call him Master. Now, that's significant because they identify him as the Messiah. It means that they knew who he was. And they're approaching Jesus. They're seeking Jesus because of who he is. And then they obviously make a request. And that request is based on a promise that God made. They ask for him to perform exactly what the Messiah was prophesied to do. What God promised that the Messiah would do. Notice what they say. Jesus, Master, they know who He is. And here's what they request. Have mercy on us. That's the, the promise part. The person of God is the Jesus Master. The promise of God is have mercy on us. That's a phrase that was very common. It was a common plea in those days of someone who was in desperate straits. Think about it. That's what the rich man said to Abraham in Luke 16, when he lifted his eyes in hell. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. It's a common phrase. And the reason they're so excited and call out of this request is, is they knew that the cleansing of lepers was a sign of the Messiah. If Jesus was the Messiah, then he could do for them what they needed. You remember back in Luke chapter 4, may not have been there recently, but it's in Luke 4. I'm sure you remember the, the, the story that after Jesus is tempted by Satan, he goes to Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as is the custom, he's the one that stands up, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. Do you remember what he reads? He reads the passage about the Messiah in Isaiah 61. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to bring, to bring liberty to the captives, to recover and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that the Messiah had come. And he closes the book, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, and then all of the eyes of the synagogue are upon him, because he's read the Scriptures, and now he's going to give the exposition. He's going to give his interpretation, or, or the meaning. And Luke 21, verse 21 says, And he began to say to them, This day, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And what did they do? Oh, that's an interesting sermon. That's not what they did. They knew exactly what Jesus was proclaiming. The Bible says they were filled with wrath. They said, this man is the Messiah. It's Joseph's son. And they... Cast him out of the synagogue, take him to the to the brow of the of the hill. The Messiah, when he came, he was going to do miraculous works. Luke chapter seven, verse nineteen. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison and he doubted? You remember what Jesus quotes to John the Baptist? The message he sends back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, "Are you the one who was supposed to come?" Or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to the messengers back to John, Listen, go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's what he tells John, how you'll know that I'm the Messiah. These things are, are happening. Jesus even references cleansing of lepers when he sends his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. He says, Go, and here's what you announce. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's what God promised would happen when the Messiah comes. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give tells the disciples to do. The cleansing of lepers is a, is, a, is a promise that God was going to fulfill when Jesus, the person, the Messiah, was to come. Now, this is significant. It's significant because no leper, we have no record in the Bible, no leper has been cleansed or healed since Naaman in the Old Testament until Jesus shows up on the scene. So, I mean, this would have been a major deal. It would have been something that everyone was, was talking about. They heard who he was and what God had promised, and that's the direction of their cry. Jesus, that's who he is. Have mercy on us. What God promised to do, do for us. That's the, that's the direction of their, of their faith. And that's where our faith should be directed. If you ever have hope to accomplish anything in your spiritual life, if you ever want to avail yourself of the benefits of the, of the Bible, hang your hope on the person of Jesus Christ and the promises that God has made, not some miraculous uh, manifestations or anything else. The Christian life is centered. What does it look like? John 17.3 says, This is eternal life that we would know 
Him. The Christian life is centered on knowing God and growing in your knowledge of God, learning more about who He is. And it's also centered on the promises that He made from Genesis to Revelation. And so in your Christian life, you want to simplify it. What you ought to be renewing your mind with, the direction that you ought to be focused on, is the person of God, who God is. And then obviously what, what He promised. But that's the direction of faith. But once faith is pointed in the right direction... God expects a response, doesn't He? It's not all head knowledge. It's to transfer into our, our lives. And that's the second, the second lesson that you see here. The direction was in the person and the promise, but then the development of that faith, and I'll show you why I say development, requires a, a response. Now, one of the ten goes through the, goes through the entire process and is confirmed a genuine believer. The other nine stop at this point. Look at verse 14. Look at what Jesus says. This is totally different from this morning. They cried, Jesus, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, now remember, he's still a hundred paces apart. Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now what's the difference from this morning? The man's right at Jesus' feet. Jesus sees him and has compassion on him. He touches the man. And he says to him, you're cleansed. Now, go show yourself to the priest as proof to them, to the priesthood. But it's there. Jesus doesn't do that here. They're at a hundred paces distance. He doesn't touch them. He just simply... So he doesn't even cleanse them yet when he says it. He commands them to start walking toward the priests and show themselves for a declaration of being clean. Now, think about the significance of this. A leper is going to be in hot water if he shows up falsely for the declaration of, a, of, of cleansing. And again, this man, this Messiah that they're crying out to is a, is a hundred paces away. He says nothing to them. He just says, turn and walk toward Jerusalem and go show yourself to the priest for a declaration of being cleansed. And he does this for several reasons. Like this morning, obviously Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. Luke 13, 14, required that the priests would declare a leper clean so they could return to normal life. So that was important for them. But more importantly, he does it as an exercise of their of their faith. You see the exercise here? They're crying, Jesus, Messiah, Master, have mercy on us. And obviously they're asking to be cleansed. He does nothing but tells them to begin walking toward Jerusalem. Faith looks to a person and a promise, but our believing response is the activating of that faith. Faith is our believing response to a promise of, of God. And that's how our faith is developed. It's rooted in the person of Christ and the promises of God, but it's developed. It, it grows in, in obedience, in acting on it. Growing in your trust of God happens not only when you look toward Him, but when you act. Isn't that what James says? Faith without 
works is dead? It doesn't mean works save you. It means it's a natural thing for your faith to be put, put to work. And faith is in Christ, but it's put into action. And the more you exercise your faith, the stronger it becomes. Now, we're not told the extent of the condition of these lepers, but regardless, Jesus commands them to start walking toward the priest to be declared clean. And verse 14, they obey his command. And as they were going, obviously they started going, but as they were going, they were cleansed. Notice it says as. The text is clear, not before, but as they were going. He sent them to the priest because only he could restore them to society and allow them to come back into the city. But the priest was to declare what God had already done. And it was an exercise of faith for them to start walking in that direction before anything ever happened to them, wasn't it? That's all I do is declare what God has already done when I stand here and preach. I simply declare what God has already done on the cross. I say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I declare to you what God has already accomplished from the cross. I say if you look to His person and believe in His promise, and then you come to Him. You come to Christ. Whatever term you want to use, the act of coming doesn't save you. There's no salvation in walking an aisle or praying a prayer. Salvation is, is, is when your faith is fixed on the person and the promise of Christ. But doing that is, a, is, a, is an outward manifestation of what's already happened on the inside. It, it could be a believing response. And that's what the lepers did. And notice it was all of them, all ten of them did that. They all responded. They all were healed. But here's where the departure takes place. Only one had genuine faith. And that was evidenced by what he does next. What they do next. Look at verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Who's him? It's Jesus. And he was a Samaritan. That's kind of like the, the thunderclap there, just to be clear. And obviously this would have enraged Jews. Notice, think about how different this is. And I just say it's a testimony that God knows best in whatever the situation that you're in. Um, And so the best thing to do is just obey. That man this morning hindered the gospel by going out and telling everyone, crying out in a loud voice and telling everyone around because Jesus couldn't go preach the gospel in the, the cities and the towns. And he has to... Stay outside of town because he's mobbed. And the next passage in Mark chapter 4 that we're going to look at next week is, is when Jesus, when they lowered uh, the, the man through the roof. But this man does, does that. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him and the gospel's not hindered at all. He tells them, go show yourself to the priest. 
And this man, as he was going, he notices that he's been healed. He turns back. And he glorifies God with a loud voice. And he falls on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Now, I think after he did that, he went to the priest and did what Jesus said for him to do. But it's like, I can't go do that. I have to worship. I have to give thanks to the one who's accomplished this for me. And I think that's the third lesson that you can learn about genuine faith. The desire of genuine faith is is worship. You can fake a lot of things. You can fake responses. Um, you can fake being pointed in the direction of Christ and His promises. You can say, uh, uh, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. Um, but this one's really, really difficult to fake. It's the inward disposition of the heart. It's the it's the it's the core. It's what you end up coming back to. Yes, salvation gives a lot of outward things. The Bible gives a lot of outward things that that show us what are the fruits of salvation. Um, studying the scriptures, gathering with the the brethren, uh, giving, uh, witnessing. There's a number of things that the Bible gives. But when you boil them down, there's a desire that's under them forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together. The desire is found in 1 John. The evidence of salvation is you love the brethren, plural. You desire to be around God's people. You see how the desire is then turned into some work or something outward. You could fake coming to church and not have the desire, but you can't have the desire and not come and ultimately want to gather with, with God's with God's people. You can not be a believer and fake reading the Bible. But if you're genuinely saved, one of the evidences of salvation is that you hunger for the sincere milk of the Word. There will be something in you that will desire to know God. Now, I'm not saying that you're not saved if you struggle with your daily devotions. That's normally the answer I get when you're talking to somebody. So, how are you doing in your spiritual walk? Or they're saying, I'm struggling in their spiritual walk. And they'll say, well, I'm, you know... I'm not doing as well with my daily devotions. That's not what I'm saying. Everybody goes through dry spells, and it's a discipline like anything else. But what is the deep-seated desire deep down? Do you find that there's an evidence in your heart that, that you truly want to know more about, about God? See the desire and how it, it, it works out. The ultimate evidence that you have been transformed, that you have spiritual life, is that your want-tos have been changed. Your desires have been changed. And you become a worshiper of, of God. Face direction is in God and His promises. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Direction in, in God and the promises. The development requires a response. They respond to the command of, of Jesus. But faith's desire, genuine faith, the desire that will be in the heart is, is true worship. True faith always manifests in a form of worship. I mean, think about it. Jesus is both Lord 
and Christ. He's not, how many times have I said it? Your get out of hell free card. Jesus is not just the one that gets you into heaven and out of hell. Oh, he does that. But he's your master. He's your Lord. There's the idea of worship. Have you ever, uh, I mean, this is why professions fizzle out and prove false whenever the benefits wear out. It's exactly what you see here. Have you ever led somebody to Christ who was in a bad place? Seen somebody come to Christ in a bad place, headed for jail, their marriage was was on the rocks, they were struggling with an addiction, whatever it, it may be, and God delivers them, and then when the storm passes, they pass too? I've seen the opposite, praise the Lord. A lot of times it's because they sought the benefits that God could give them and not God Himself. And I understand I'm painting with a broad brush, but it's possible. And they have a response, but it's so they could get what God promised. And the proof was whether there's genuine worship present or absent. I mean, the real evidence of salvation is not how high you jump, but what your feet do when they hit the ground. And I would also say where your heart is focused whenever they... They hit the ground. Ups and downs, in and outs, fallings and failures, stumbling and bumbling. But you will set your face toward Christ like Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. You'll always come back to the Lord. Your heart will always come back to God and the worship of God. Here in verse 15, there's the one who cried mercy, now having received it. He's crying with a loud voice, glory and honor to God alone for that mercy. He turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. He falls on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. As profusely as he pleaded with Christ to heal him, he is profusely worshiping now. The word that Luke uses here for giving thanks is the word for gratitude toward God. It's, it's not used of giving thanks to, to men I mean, the leper's worshiping. And you know that not only by what he says, but what Jesus says. This leper is convinced that Jesus is not just the miracle worker, but God, a very God. And in faith, he now desires to, to worship him. Look at verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, What a probing question. I told you before, this is hanging on my wall, this picture. I mean, this is a haunting question. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God? There's the worship. Except this foreigner. And he said to him, stand up and go, your faith has saved you or made you made you whole. Jesus said, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? I'll tell you where they're lost. They looked to God and responded to Christ's command, but they, they didn't desire Him. They desired the, the benefits. I, I think that's a, about the only conclusion that you can draw from what Jesus says here. He, he juxtaposes the, the Samaritan and the foreigner versus the Jews. He does that on a regular basis to show those who have come to faith and those who aren't. He shows there's the ten and there's the one. He shows them going on 
And it shows the one coming back, giving God thanks, uses that word, glorifying God. And the evidence of genuine faith is it produces worship. There are those who seek the Lord for His benefits, and there are those who seek Him as the benefit. Oh, the Lord gives plenty of benefits, doesn't He? I mean, He does. He's good. And He will shower you with more blessings than you can hold. But you don't worship Christ because what He can give you. You worship Christ because He's your Savior. And because you do, the benefits follow. And it breaks my heart. I know it breaks yours. But it's important to understand there, there are people who will look in the direction of God due to incurable circumstances. Some will even respond. But the true evidence of genuine faith is a life of gratitude-filled worship. As I said, it might be ugly. It might be up and down. Fits and starts. But in the end, a genuine Christian always comes back to, to God. And the nine others praise for their healing, but only one worshipped. And that's the difference. I think Jesus is saying this to another Samaritan in John 4, 23. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And that's the goal of faith, God's glory. He's seeking worshipers. And this man had faith. Jesus tells him he does. Ten were healed. Nine were ungrateful Jews and one Samaritan that gave glory to God. So, when you read the stories about miracles, when you hear the stories about miracles, keep your... Keep your feet firmly planted on the ground. The normal Christian life is walking in the Word. Um, God does amazing things. But putting one foot in front of the other, being here, sitting under the Word, reading the Word, being around other believers, letting them provoke you to love and, and good works is really where sanctification happens. And focus your direction on who God is and learning what He promises. Develop your faith by obeying what you already know or what you you learn. And then test your faith by looking at what you worship. What do you truly desire? Jesus said something else about that in Matthew, didn't He? Where your treasure is, where your heart will be also. And I want to treasure Christ. Don't you? I do. And I know you do. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this lesson tonight. Thank you for the fact that you even offer. You offered to all ten of these lepers the same thing. And only one of them Worshiped you truly, oh Lord, help us. Help us to enjoy your benefits, but help us to see you as the greatest benefit.
Father, I, I, I pray even for this man who professed faith in You this morning. Root him and ground him in the truth. Help him, Father, to continue to walk, to learn of You, to know You, and to learn of Your promises. Help us, Father, to develop our spiritual muscles, not just to learn, but do. Help us to put our faith into action, because as we do, that's when we grow strong. And help all of it ultimately come back to You and Your worship. You're pleased with that. We love You. Thank You for loving us in Jesus' name.